Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 2nd, 2017. It is a new year, and uh, the clock has started ticking already. Tick tock, tick tock. What are you doing to further your own liberty and freedom and knowledge and skills and independence in 2017, one day is gone already, and it will be, oh, it'll seem almost like no time at all when we'll be talking in depth about what's going to happen in 2018. Use the time. On that note, I use my time off. I'm in a good mood, if you can't tell. I did an awful lot during my time off of, well, nothing, because I think there's also a place for that. I didn't do nothing the entire time, but I did some nothing, and uh, some nothing was quite enjoyable. I think we all need those reboots as well. So while you're working for freedom and liberty, also remember to recharge and reboot once in a while. So what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about a variety of things. I have some stuff that's not really feedback today. It's Monday, so it's a feedback show where you send me emails and I discuss them. But the uh, first three actually are things from my end. Number one, uh, a little bit more on sous vide cooking. I went ahead and bought a sous vide uh, cooker called the Jewel sous vide cooker. Uh, I've been using it during my time off, and I have to say it's changed my life just a little bit, but it definitely has made a change for the better in my life. I am kind of blown away with sous vide, and I'll talk about that just a little bit. And there will be a show on sous vide cooking coming in the near future when I get a little bit more of it under my belt. Uh, TSP has events here at Nine Mile Farm uh, either once or twice or three times a year. We've kind of standardized on two, and we've decided we'll never do two in the same season again, never do two fall or two spring again in the same year because, well, you want to kill yourself trying to do two of them crammed into maybe six weeks apart. So we decided we would do one, one fall and one spring, and we decided definitely we're going to do that this year. So the spring event... Uh, we have dates that will be announced during the show today. I won't be putting it up for reservations for a few weeks at least yet, but uh, I'll tell you a little bit about how you can be part of it if you want to as an instructor. So that will be uh, on today's docket as well. We also will be doing a Granddaddy's Gun Club shoot about mid-April. I'll tell you a little bit about that and remind you what Granddaddy's Gun Club is all about. See if I can encourage some of you to start organizing your own shoots or just meetups and things like that as well. <clears throat> Next up, I have a question on hoop houses. Do they really extend your zone? Like if you're in zone 6 and you put in a hoop house, does it really make you like you're in zone 8? Not exactly. I'll explain when we talk about that. I have a look at World War II life in America, a forgotten history uh, here at home, and sacrifices that the people that lived here were asked to make and did so largely willingly. Um, I also want to tell you today that you do not live in a nation that is free when you are told you have to grow grass, but you can't smoke grass. And I am talking about two different types of grass, but I just put that in there for a little pluckiness. The story really has nothing to do with marijuana. It actually has to do with the grass you grow in your front yard or choose not to grow and a ridiculous law from a city in Florida. Next up today, I have a TSPN listener who is writing some very cool books for your kids. It's uh, really cool stuff, and I'll let you hear from him a little bit today. I have a question on my favorite duck breed or breeds for duck farming, and I think maybe sometimes people make this a little too complicated, so I'll try to make it a little bit more simple. And a major success milestone has been reached for a listener in 2016. I want to know if you're going to have yours in 2017. I want to give you some encouragement. This guy is a guy that's been on the show uh, several years ago. 
He's been running a YouTube channel in a kind of a full-time capacity for quite a while, and he hit some major milestone in 2016. And uh, hopefully it'll be a good closing segment to get you thinking about what you're going to make out of 2017 yourself. Um, <clears throat> before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasonings, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Bob Wells Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Matriculus, a small web agency from Central Virginia that provides design and consulting services to tech customers around the globe, from the web to mobile, digital to print, static to motion, They can help you survive your design needs for product development. You can learn more about them in the TSP Business Directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. And we are moving forward in time fast now, folks. We're kind of into the 1900s, which uh, most of us have lived in at least part of the 1900s. And we're into 1922 because the episode is 1922. <laughs> We have Welcome to the Roaring Twenties. I'm not going to read that today, so I'm going to suggest you do. Uh, this whole thing about these kids today is nothing new, man. The current generation is lost. Uh, it's, it's, it's not new. It's not new. It's not new at all. We also have Corruption at the Highest Levels. You might want to read that because corruption is not new either. Uh, what we're going to look at today out of the three segments from Alex Shrugged is your eugenics update because it's important and it's going to have a huge degree to do uh, with what's going to come in the next 15, 20 years to the world, which will be absolutely awful. And uh, we need to realize that a lot of it started here. We don't like to talk about that because we're the good guys. Before we do that, though, we have in notable births, Charles M. Schultz, author of the comic strip Peanuts is born this year. The Golden Girls are born this year, at least two of them, Betty White and B. Arthur. Betty White, I believe, is the second person mentioned in the history segment who is still alive so far. Doris Day, Jack Kerouac, Norman Lear, Lyndon LaRouche, and George McGovern are all also born in this year, though all of them have since passed from this earthly form. In other news, the Lincoln Memorial is dedicated in this year. The California Grizzly, the one on the state flag, is now extinct, and Eskimo pies are introduced. This this year, one million a day are sold. Uh, the song I Scream, You Scream, We All Scream for Ice Cream refers to the Eskimo pie. I did not know that. Anyway, your eugenics update. Unfortunately, I knew a lot of this. Four sterilization laws in seven states have been struck down by the Supreme Court because they only apply to institutionalized members of society, as such as prisoners and mental patients. The law also lacks a means of appeal, Nevertheless, doctors are sterilizing people on their own authority, authority believing that criminal, criminality, alcoholism, promiscuity are hereditary in nature. In many cases, the patients believe they are having an appendectomy or whatever vague lie the doctor can think of. Last year, Congress passed a new law limiting the immigration of Italians, Russians, Jews, and Poles. Immigration has dropped to a third of what it was last year. Dr. Henry Laughlin 
of the Eugenics Record Office has testified to Congress the recent immigrants are of inborn stock of poor quality. Dr. Laughlin will soon be given access to the U.S. Census records, so there's plenty more to come from the Eugenics Records Office. Stay tuned. Quote, If America doesn't keep out the queer, alien, mongrelized people of Southern and Eastern Europe, her crop of citizens will eventually be dwarfed and mongrelized in turn. The Saturday Evening Post, 1923, in support of Dr. Laughlin. My take by Alex Shrug. Regarding surgeons performing operations with the full and knowledgeable consent of the patient, I have no proof, but I strongly suspect that my internist removed my appendix at the same time when he was removing my gallbladder. We had a brief discussion about it prior to putting me under. The discussion seemed to have no point except that he wanted to get a sense of what I might think of a double operation. I recall telling him that it made a lot of sense since he would have already had me open. Only later did I realize that he might have been fishing for permission to go ahead and do it on the sly. Honestly, I have no idea if he removed my appendix, but I still wonder. I I don't know, Alex. Today's doctors are pretty big on billing for everything they do, so it probably would have showed up on your bill if he did. But I think you'll you'll hear a lot more about the eugenics movement in, in the next 10, 15, 20 episodes of the history segment. 10, 20, 15 episodes of the show, honestly. Uh, because it is a, a large part of what leads to World War II in the Holocaust. And again, you're going to find, if you don't know this already, that a lot of this thinking originated in the United States and there were actually German scientists and doctors who came here to study the concept of eugenics. Um, I'm not one of these people like uh, like your favorite radio talk show jock, right? That, that, that thinks they're still doing it, man. They're gonna get it, right? No, no, no. But the history is, is is actually pretty conclusive that it was something that originated here in the United States in an effort to call out less desirables by. We'll just start out with making sure they don't reproduce, and eventually that turns into, well, then what are we keeping them around for if we wish they were never here? My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, my lead-off for you today, again, I got some stuff that I wanted to tell you about that just has happened in my mind or in my life over the winter break that I took. Um, I did decide, from all of the feedback from listeners uh, that are out there, using the sous vide, sous vide method of cooking, which is basically using hot water to cook anything but mostly meat, which I kind of never liked the idea of. I always thought of it like boiling meat. Well, you're not boiling meat because, first of all, the water never boils, and second of all, the water never touches the meat. The meat's inside a plastic or silicon bag sitting in water that's held to a controlled temperature. So I looked at a couple different ones, and uh, the, the two main, and I'll put links to both of these in the show notes today, but I, I came down as I looked at, you know, what what made the most sense for me uh, between one called The Jewel, J-O-U-L-E, uh, by a company called Chef Steps, and another one called the Anova uh, sous vide. And these are a little bit pricier, um, uh, compared to what some of the lower cost stuff that's out there. And at the time I bought it, which was just a couple weeks ago, um, the Anova was 200 bucks, just like the Jewel. 
uh, same price. It's 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 now one sixty nine. They've dropped the price probably because Jewel's doing a pretty good job of competing with them. And that's if you want the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth thing built in. If you want the Innova that you just set and 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 control from the unit itself, it's down to one twenty nine. So these units range, these higher end units, I guess you'd say, range from one hundred thirty bucks to two hundred bucks. And the one that's one twenty nine now used to be close to two hundred, but as new technology comes out and displaces the old, it, it drops in price. That's the pricing curve of technology. Um, as I looked at them. There were a few negative reviews on the Innova with some problems, but Innova seems to have a good reputation for fixing problems and replacing anything that doesn't work and all. But what really did it for me is the Innova ANOVA has an 800-watt heater, and the Joule has a 1,200-watt heater. And when I saw how much quicker the Joule got to cooking temperature, the the speed to getting to your cooking temperature was more important to me than being able to sit on a you know a train somewhere and tell the cooker to start cooking remotely, which you can do with the Innova, the Wi-Fi enabled one anyway. Because well, I'm not going to do that. The other thing that got me about the Jewel, and this was very important to me, is my wife and I have an ongoing debate about what constitute ruined steak. And I can eat a steak that's a little bit more done than I'd like, but it better not be you know all gray, and it better not even be very very light pink. I want some real pinkish, a little bit of red in it. And the Jewel comes with an app, and you run the whole thing from your, your smartphone or your tablet or whatever, and I could actually pull up a picture of steak and say, this is what 132 degrees looks like, this is what 136 degrees looks like, this is what 140 looks like. I think 140 is enough. Will this work for you? So it's a little pink, but okay. Okay, great. So be it. So in the, the New York strips went at 140 in the sous vide for an hour. Coated with Chef Keith Snow's uh, steak seasoning. Out they came into a scorching hot skillet. They went to sear them off for just a couple seconds on each side. And my wife said that's the best piece of steak I've ever eaten. And I was happy because it wasn't overcooked and I didn't have to ruin a steak for it. And there's a couple reasons I think this worked. Number one... I was able to take it to the level of doneness. When you do sous vide, unlike when you're doing a steak on the grill and you're doing it to, like, say, medium, it's not just medium color in the center. It's it's the same color from edge to edge, right? It, it, when you cut it, it's, it's that beautiful pinkish red all the way through. So that means that I don't have to leave the middle more red to get the whole thing the way that she'll eat it. Or, and I'll eat it too, by the way. It was fantastic. Um, the other thing is, when you cook sous vide, it, over time, and you can leave it in there for, you know, like to do a one-inch steak about an hour in this, this you know, pot of basically hot water. Um, when it comes out, a lot of the, the, the juice is cooked out of the meat. You can use that to make a sauce or whatever. We did that. And I did a lot with a little bit of quinoa, and that was freaking fantastic. Put the... The, the meat juice in the skillet and, and got it going. It took some quinoa that we had cooked earlier and threw it in there and heated it up. Man, that was badass. But because of that, it's, it's always basically a well-rested piece of meat. You haven't gotten it higher temperatures on the outside than the inside. So when you cut it, it never runs at all. You never get any like blood running out of the steak, which is just, it, once that happens, doesn't matter what the steak looks like, she won't eat it. So this was just fantastic. I learned a lot of other things about it uh, this this break as well. For instance, if I make two steaks and we only eat one, well, 
we put the other steak back in a bag and heat it back up in the sous vide and don't overcook it because you know how hard it is to over re reheat a steak. Anyway, I'm going to tell you I'm sold on these. I'm sold on the idea. There are some lower cost items out there, but this is what I think. These 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 higher end items are a little bit more money, but I believe buy and cry once, right? Instead of buy and then buy again and then buy again, eventually cry and wish you would have bought the better one. So from feedback from many listeners, the Innova and the Jewel, I don't have any people saying, I got this, I wish I would have never got it. Uh, again, I went with the Jewel because I think the app is amazing, where you can actually see, you know, here's a pork chop. This is what it'll look like if you cook it at whatever temperature. And you actually see like a video of it being cut. And when you when you do it, you get what you're promised. That's awesome. Um, but the lower cost ones, I'm sure they work. And there's all like you know they call them like redneck sous vide methodologies and stuff using power controls and all. And I think any of it's fine. And it's definitely worth exploring. And I think one of the best things about it is an improvement to you know your flow of your life because that's a big thing we talk about here is lifestyle management, lifestyle design. And, and my buddy David and I were talking about how you know you cook a meal for a, for people coming over. And you want to serve it at the right temperature. And then everybody gets talking and you, you're trying to get everybody to the table and nobody wants to go to the table. If you have steak or chops or whatever in a sous vide and everybody's not ready yet, just leave it. It can sit there for another 30 minutes. It's not going to go any further. Um, and then being able to reheat all of this stuff, fantastic. I have found already some things it's not great at, um, but I'll save that for another day. I'll save that for another day so we can move on from there. Uh, I did want to let you know, again, we are going to have the TSP Spring event. Uh, it's probably going to be, in fact, it's like 99% right now, unless some kind of major earth-shattering thing changes it, March 23rd, 24, and 25. 23, 24, 25. With, with, and that's that's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, with, with students being able to show up on Wednesday to set up campsites uh, and things like that and hang out and have just beer and social hour the first night and staying over till the, the morning of the, the Sunday, the 26th, and then go home. Uh, as much as I love having you guys here by Sunday morning, it's like, get out, get out, get out, get out. Let me put my life back together. Um, we did a kind of fun in skills, I guess is what we called it last time. We had, I think it was 21 sessions in three days, seven a day. And we did, we did soap making. We did airsoft training. We did mead making. We did, aquaponics, we did just uh, worm bins and, and beekeeping and, and just tons of stuff. I'd like to throw out right now an invitation like I threw out last time. If you would like to instruct us at this event, send me an email with TSPC event instructor in the subject line. Uh, now, this is what you get as an instructor. Okay, you get to come, you get a guaranteed seat. So when I open these up, they always sell out. You get a guaranteed seat and you get a hundred dollars off in return for instructing. So you get a guarantee that you're going to be able to come because not everybody wants to come gets to come and you get a hundred bucks off. I can't do the number of instructors that we do for these and give instructors just a free pass. I just can't do it. Um, here's what I'd like to say though. If you instructed last time, I didn't have a bad instructor. Man, when you throw something out that like that, you think, geez, I'm going to get a dud or two. I had everybody. It was awesome. Nobody bored the shit out of anybody. It was great. But I don't want to do the same one, okay? So I would prefer this time to uh, have, if you were instructing before, you come up with a new thing or a new angle or something else and not part two where somebody would have had to see part one because not every student's going to have been here last time. 
So I'm, I was wide open, but, you know, try to come up with a new angle on what you're doing. I'm also going to do this. Seven a day for three days, to me, was too much. Um, I'm probably going to do five a day or six a day for three days, which is still either 15 to 18 sessions. And then what we're going to do is what we did last time, but there's going to be more time for it, is we'll have open times. We'll have a whiteboard up, and people that want to do an impromptu discussion, class, whatever, can just do that. And then other people can just sit around and maybe, if it's a little later in the day, drink a beer or something. So it's going to be a blast. Uh, it's going to be a good time of year. Third week of March, it's not too hot yet. Hopefully we won't get any tornadoes or anything like that. But other than that, it should be great. Uh, good time to camp, good time to hang out, and the farm should be green by then, right? That's that's green season. So that's there to look forward to in 2017. Another thing we're going to be doing, so if you have not yet gone to granddaddy'sgun.com and set up your account, do so. Okay, Granddaddy's Gun is an idea that I came up with last year. I built the site completely myself. Um, I'm not going to put more effort into functionality and building it unless the site gets more activity. So I can make that site do a lot more. You can basically, you tell me what you want it to do, and the platform I've built it on, I can find things that will make it do that. It's built on a WordPress platform called BuddyPress. It's like a mini Facebook type thing. You can set up a group. You can get notifications. You can have a private group. You can have a public group, whatever. But the whole point of this is to form groups in your area with your friends, your family, and make new friends in your area, have meetups and discuss Second Amendment rights and firearms and bring guns to them, do show and tell, talk about why this gun's important to you, whether it's a gun you got from your grandfather or a gun you're going to hand down to your grandson someday, and then eventually at one of those meetings have a young person or another person in your family that you're handing that gun down to and give them the gun there in that kind of formal, not really formal, but special thing. Now, that's the, the, the synopsis, and I want to keep it that simple because some people are going to go, we, we, we can't do the big idea, right? Go have a meetup at a freaking burger joint, have some beers and meet some people and talk about it, and you can't do your show and tell with your guns there, okay? Right? But even that would work. Start building these bonds based on the best of gun culture. And in creating this concept of handing down guns, guns don't need to go to pawn shops when you decided you don't really want that gun anymore. Put that gun into a young person's hand or a younger person's hand, somebody to carry on that legacy. Um, and, and if you think about it this way, if you own a gun that was your grandfather's and eventually at one of these meetings you give it to your grandson or granddaughter, that gun right there is across six generations. That's pretty powerful. And that, I believe, is one of the best ways we can come up with to defend gun rights. But the big idea of Granddaddy's Gun Club, the, 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 like the, the Cadillac of meetups or events, is everybody gets together, let's say, a Friday early afternoon, take off work a couple hours early, pack up the kids. If the kids are coming, you go out, you bring your guns, you bring your tent or whatever, however you're doing it. You can do it at a, you know, like a YMCA campground where people get cabins. or I don't care. Any place it's okay to have guns. And uh, to shoot them as well, eventually. And it could be at a, maybe you have to make a motorcade in the morning to do the shooting part. But you have a sergeant at arms. He acts like a guy at the front of a gun show. He sits there. You bring your gun in. And before anybody touches an adult beverage or anything like that, he takes a look at that gun. He clears it. And he puts a zip tie on it, trims that zip tie off. And that freaking zip tie stays on that gun until the next day when you go to the range. 
That's the only way to make sure you keep this 100% safe, because if one of these goes south, it'll destroy the whole movement before it even gets started. Once that's done, everybody just has a big kind of potluck cookout, you know, and a campfire, and you sit around the campfire, and you talk, and you shoot the breeze, have some adult beverages if that's your thing. Don't do it if it's not. But at some point, get everybody around the campfire and take at least one gun you've brought, tell the story of that gun, which could even be, I bought this gun yesterday, but I've wanted this particular gun my whole life, and I've already decided that I'm going to hand it down to my grandson, Bill, or my granddaughter, Susie, or I don't know which one yet, or I'm just having my first kid, and I don't know if it'll be him or his child, that I'll, but I'll be handing this down. Here's what it means to me, or I've carried this gun for my whole life. I've shot deer with it, I've you know, whatever. You tell the story of that gun. You make, make the story of the gun makes the gun more than just a thing, more than just an inanimate object, and put them away. Unless somebody's decided it's time, and if it's time, then we have those people go toward the end of everybody's show and tell, and they present that gun to that next generation. I think that is probably the biggest thing we can do to restore the value of positive gun culture in America. And that's the only way we're going to win this fight long term because they want to take away our rights. They do. And then everybody goes to bed. Next morning, everybody gets up. You go out to the range somewhere, and everybody shoots. You get to shoot those guns that people told stories about. Some really cool ones. Some really old ones. Some plain Jane ones that are special because of their story. Everybody packs up. Everybody goes home. Sounds like a fantastic time. If you want to do it two day, two, you want to have two two nights of camping out. Go ahead, I don't care. I don't. I'm not in charge of this. I just put it up and said, let's go do it. Well, here's the good news. My buddy David has got a line of some property down near Corsicana, Texas, and he's going to be talking to them this month. And we are going to set up the first one that I know of that anybody's done for April of this year. A big one, like you know, forty, fifty people at it. But do it on your own granddaddy'sgun.com get over there I can't believe I was able to get that domain there's a couple different ways people spell granddaddy it doesn't matter I own both of them one redirects to the other but join granddaddy's gun folks let's preserve this let's preserve this I would also say this if you have any gun podcasts you listen to that you like do me a favor reach out to the, the producers of those Let them know about this and tell them I'd be willing to come on and talk for 15, 20 minutes if they wanted to have me on as a guest to talk to them about Granddaddy's Gun. I don't even want to promote TSP when I do that. I just want to promote this and get this out to the gun community. All right, so with all of that done, let's actually do some listener feedback. Though I've got to tell you, all of the stuff we've talked about has been based on feedback over the years. It, it really has. It's what's driven me to do all these things. Anyway. This one comes from Dean. Dean says, Hello, Jack. How far will a hoop house push your zone? Background. I'm in East Kansas, zone 6A, and cannot grow olives. They are usually a zone 8 tree. And let me tell you, zone 8 is marginal, by the way, with olives. They lie a little bit about that. And you need to be like almost 9 for it to be really reliable, especially if you don't protect them in the first year. But I'll just let that go. I was thinking about maybe getting a hoop house and placing some plants inside with some water balls, uh, barrels to provide enough warmth. For the crops to live, do you think this would work well? Thanks, Dean. Dean, I think the answer is no, they won't. And I think this is a big misconception people have. I do like that you mentioned the water barrels, but I don't think it's going to be enough because I've tried it. 
Uh, and I've tried it with things far less fragile than an olive, but things that can't handle going below freezing uh, with a couple big black garbage cans so that they were a thermal mass. But I don't think just that is enough. Um, you have to go further than that. Let me explain the, the limitation of hoop houses, greenhouses, glass houses, call them what you want to. They're fantastic during the day. It can be 20 degrees out during the day, and that sun's coming through that clear, transparent material, and it's being held in there. And it'll warm up in there. And I've, I've been in greenhouses that are not heated. And I was in a greenhouse one time. It was 18 degrees outside. And the thermometer inside read 74. And you went in a coat and you took it off. You're standing there in a T-shirt and you felt like you were in central Florida in the winter. And at that time of day, it's moved your zone from wherever the hell friggin' 18 degrees is to a zone where it would be about 70 degrees. It's moved you up in zone. It, there's no doubt about it. But then something happens. The, the shadows get longer, and the day begins to fade, and the sun goes down. And there's some residual heat held in there for a little while. It doesn't last very long. And eventually the temperature will equalize. And if it's 18 degrees outside, sooner or later, before morning, it's going to be 18 degrees inside. Now listen, I know people are talking about wall peenies and underground greenhouses and passive solar walls. and That's fine. That All that stuff works. Solar batteries, uh, it all works. But if you don't have it, then your greenhouse basically keeps it warmer during the day so plants will grow better and keeps things like frost and wind off your plants in the evening and the night. And if they can handle the temperatures... They'll survive better, they'll thrive better, they'll grow better than they would if they were not in a greenhouse. But it does not keep your tomato from dying when it's 28 degrees. It just doesn't. It will, at times, keep plants that would die in a frost from not dying if it's a light frost or just going into what we would call a light freeze. So a plant that when it gets 29 degrees would die may not die. Might look a little sad, but it may not die. But you know, if it goes down to 27, it's dead. There is enough residual warmth in there and enough insulation, and it's also the time below freezing. So if you're getting a night where your low is 29 degrees, it might not go below freezing until let's say 4:30 in the morning. And if the sun comes up at 6:37, and brings it back above freezing, even though it's still freezing outside, and it's only been below freezing in there for two hours-ish, and it was edgy on it, you might get by. And it does help and extend the season some. But you're not going to grow cantaloupes and watermelon in a greenhouse unless you, you know, during winter in a, in a cold climate, unless you have some sort of thermal battery. Here's a couple different ways that this can be done. One is you basically dig a deep trench and you put pipes down in the ground and you can Google how to do this. And you basically have a, one pipe sticking up high and one pipe sticking up low and the pipes go back and forth through the ground. And during the day, the fan draws in from the high pipe. And since it's drawn in from the high pipe all day long, it's bringing the hottest air into the ground and creating a thermal battery in the ground that then is released in the evening. And in the summer, you can use the same situation, except you draw in through your low pipe where the air is cooler, 
and you help cool and you do that at night and you cool the ground and you actually keep the greenhouse cooler. That's a way. You can put a rocket stove in that, that runs through a berm in the center of your greenhouse and fire that up and that'll heat the ground up with you know a handful of sticks every night. Um, we're probably going to, I have a wood stove that we pulled out of the house because we just don't really need it here and it was in the way. If we put that in my greenhouse, I probably can go out there and set that up on nights that it's going to freeze because we get, you know, three nights in a row that it freezes and it doesn't freeze again for two, three weeks usually here. So I can on those nights just fill it up with a real good load of wood, get it blazing hot and damper it down so it stays with hot coals as long as possible and that residual heat will get me through. You can build them with a, with a, with a, where you have basically you're not in the ground, but you build them up against a hill to the rear. So it's kind of like a, like a, like a lean to coming off of an earth form. And, and that can do an awful lot with passive heating. I've seen people do things like that or up against the house, and then the whole back wall be full of black water tanks instead of one or two barrels, and that has a lot of carryover thermal mass. Just being up against a building is going to have a lot of advantages because the building itself is going to be kept above freezing. So, so there's, a, there's a certain amount of heat loss through your walls, but that heat loss now is going into the greenhouse, and that's going to help. So there's a, you know you can actually maybe then vent a little bit of your heat into it. There's a lot of ways to do it, but if you just set up a hoop house out in the middle of a field, throw a couple jugs, uh, you know, big old uh, barrels of water in it or something, it's not going to work. Here's another thing: the smaller, the less heat you need of supplemental heating. So a smaller greenhouse may work for you in some areas with something as simple as you get a 32 gallon uh, stainless steel or galvanized trash can. And you put that in there, and you get yourself a military M67 immersion water heater, which Old Grouch just had in stock for all of an hour, and they sold out again, but you can find them. And this is a, a immersion heater. You put it down in, the, in there, you fill it up with water. And what we used them for in the military is you put some gas in that heater, and you light it, and you set it so it just keeps dripping. And it'll bring that water to about 180 degrees if you're running at a pretty high. But you can run a little lower, and it'll hold that water about 140, 150 degrees. Well, you can put enough fuel in one of those to pretty much run through a night. Now, that will keep a small greenhouse, let's say a 10 by 10-ish greenhouse, warm enough that it probably won't freeze in there. It's going to produce a lot of humidity, though, and the one problem with that is if you get too much humidity in there and it goes out and then it goes below freezing, now you've got, a, you know, everything's covered in ice. So you got to think about how you're going to use these tech. But... I just kind of wanted to cover that and understand that like just throwing in the greenhouse alone isn't going to allow things that would normally die in freezing temperatures to live in spite of freezing temperatures unless you do some other things. Uh, next one, this is uh, this is interesting. This is I found this extremely interesting. This came from uh, Jake Robinson who sends us a lot of stuff out of Tennessee. He says this is local history during World War II from my county. Interesting to see how scarce resources were and how folks sacrificed back home. Um, celebrate this Christmas season. We know there are those. Hold on, that's just a PSA. Anyway, nope. Let's let's. I'll read the whole thing. I get it now. Celebrate this Christmas season. We know there are those who fear an uncertain future, and there are many American men and women still in harm's way in foreign lands. But let's all be thankful for what we have and enjoy and not forget the generation of Americans who survived the Great Depression and then faced the loss and devastation of the world's deadliest war. Local power companies reminded customers that outdoor Christmas lighting was prohibited. A service flag with uh, 300 stars hung in the Central High School Auditorium and housewives were being urged to save fats and for freedom. 
It was December 1943 in Rutherford County. A difficult Allied advance through Italy was succeeding with heavy losses, and an invasion of occupied France was anticipated. While the nation mourned more than 130,000 American war casualties, many more young men were volunteering or being drafted into military service. The enrollment at CHS was down to 450 with two-thirds female. Interscholastic sports were canceled, and the girls were knitting sweaters for military personnel. Every aspect of daily life in Rutherford County was affected by the war. The family kitchen was no exception. The American Fat Salvage Committee had announced that 230 million pounds of used fats would have to be salvaged annually to meet war needs. Glycerin oils and acids were needed to wage war, uh, were refined from these recycled fats. The refined products were used to make gunpowder lubricants, insecticides, and medicines. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt spoke to housewives, quote, One pound of used cooking fat will produce enough glycerin to make a pound and a half of smokeless gunpowder. Our boys are fighting in every corner of the globe, uh, need that powder, and this is one of the ways in which every woman can contribute to fighting the war, end quote. To enlist cooperation of housewives in fat salvage, two brown or red ration points are given for each pound of waste fat turned into your butcher. The ration points could be used by the housewife to purchase ration commodities such as beef or butter. Two ration items sorely missed were coffee and sugar. These imported items were in short supply to do wartime interruption of commercial shipping. The rationing was also necessary to ensure availability of military supplies. The Federal Office of Price Administration reminded farmers that they, quote, uh, that, quote, they should continue to collect ration points for all rationed meats, including pork, which they give or sell to friends, neighbors, retailers, or anyone else. Gasoline, tires, and many hard goods were also rationed or simply unavailable. The Rutherford County Rationing Board met weekly to consider special requests and hardship cases. On December 8th, the local war price and rationing board allotted two passenger cars, one bicycle, and several pairs of rubber boots, a few stoves, and several tires for farm implements, trucks, and cars. The passenger cars were for the Stewart Air Base personnel. Passenger car production ended in January 1942 by presidential order, and any new cars in 1943 were from pre-war inventories. Howard S. Brown, 902 West Main, Murfreesboro, got the bicycle. New rubber boots went to J.A. Scott, M.D., Thomas Eddy, and Eugene Hill, C.C.A. Slip, and Miss Ollie Smotherland, Mrs. Leah Brown, Freeman Hover and Miss Catherine Holton were among those getting stoves. Despite the holiday season, citizens were urged to avoid all non-essential travel, even telephone usage was discouraged. Southern Bell Telephone and Telegraph asked that each of its subscribers not to use telephones from 7 to 10 p.m. This time was to be reserved for military personnel calls. Local clubs, schools, and churches and individuals were urged to organize war bond or scrap drives for money, metals, paper, and rubber. Full newspaper ads by local businesses and merchants, large and small, promoted the sale of well, well, war bonds. Scrap drive efforts were acknowledged and celebrated on the front pages of local newspapers. With young men gone to war, Rutherford experienced full employment and even worker shortages. A somewhat vague call for construction workers appeared in a local newspaper. Quote, construction laborers needed by vital war job in the vicinity of Knoxville, Tennessee, working 53 hours a week. Uh, to weekly total, $34.21 
and room and board on project reservation. Transportation paid. This essential wardrobe needs you if you are now employed in non-essential work. War manpower board, end quote. So I'm going I'm to stop reading it there. It goes on for quite a bit longer. A lot of it's very specific to the region and mentioning streets and addresses. And uh, even though it's interesting, I don't know it would be that interesting with me reading it uh, in, in a format like this. But I wanted to kind of set the, the scene for you guys of what it was like to be an American in, of all places, Tennessee during World War II. You know, we think of World War II, we think, well, it was over there. Go fighting over there, something like that was a solid, right? But what we miss is the sacrifices that we were called on to make in this nation. Nothing like the sacrifices of the guy getting shot at with a machine gun or blown out of the sky flying a bomber, but... You know, you, you can't have more than X amount of fat this week. And we live in a society now where I, I believe more than one person has called 911 because McDonald's was out of McNuggets. And I think it's important that we look back every once in a while and, and think about what it took for us to get here. Because it makes it a little harder to squander what we have. And you know me, I'm not some nostalgic idealist. I, I, I come down on the bad parts of America all the time, but I also prop up the good. And in, in, in the 1940s, during World War II, everybody in this nation was called upon to sacrifice something, and by and large, almost everybody did. Everybody understood what was at stake. And I, I am grateful that in modern times we have not had to be called on for it again. Not just because, obviously, I don't want millions of people dead again, but because I fear that our nation wouldn't do it again. That we are so entitled today that this concept of there was rationing and all, and the government did it, and it required a hell of a lot of people to, to accept that for it to work. You couldn't just expect that people would do it. It took a lot of it took a lot of voluntary. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, geez, man, it's just floated out of my head for some reason. Compliance, voluntary compliance for this to have worked. And I remember my grandmother telling me about it when I was a kid and thinking, "Wow, wow!" But I never, I didn't get it back then. I remember her telling me that. Um, I don't remember where she was living, but my, my grandfather was, was overseas in the war, and she was somewhere toward the coast of the country. I don't know if it was on the east or west coast. I just can't remember back that far. But the cars there, they had painted the tops of the headlights black. So you could still see to drive at night, but there was a, a reduced light signature from above because they were afraid, it must have been the Pacific Coast, I believe she'd said it was the, they were afraid that the, the Japanese would at some point reach the coast and be able to bomb us, and the lights represented targets. I remember her talking about having to, to, to recycle like stockings and only being able to buy so many stockings because elastic was considered so valuable for the war effort. Everybody growing victory gardens, etc. I think every once in a while we should pause and think about our history and not just the good parts or the bad parts, but also just the, the, the parts that actually affected the average person. It might make us more grateful for what we have as we go into this new year. It also might make us a little more outraged when we hear stories like the one you're about to hear. This is about um, a bunch of idiots running a city like a bunch of tyrants. This is uh, a city in Florida that just 
doesn't make St. Peter's, Florida, doesn't make any sense whatsoever what, what these people are doing to their own citizens. But I'm going to play this news piece for you, and I'll come back and give you my thoughts on it. Tonight's top story, can a city force a homeowner to plant grass? A two-year battle between the city of St. Peter's and a resident over the answer to that question now heads to federal court. Five on Your Side's Art Holiday spoke with the frustrated homeowner, Art. Well, Jan Duffner is allergic to grass. So more than a decade ago, she and her husband landscaped with a variety of plants all around their house. St. Peter's officials say the Duffners are breaking the law. Now a federal court may try this unusual suburban debate. I can't see what the fuss is about this little postage stamp not having grass. The fuss started in 2014 when St. Peter's informed Jan Duffner and her husband Carl they would have to replace the garden that surrounds their house with turf grass. There's roses and hostas are all in here. This is a Japanese maple. The yard doesn't look like much in the wintertime, but it pops with color during the blooming months. St. Peter's requires homeowners to plant at least 50% grass on their property. Problem is that Jan Duffner is allergic to grass. I found out if I took grass out of my life that I wasn't asthmatic. I could uh, sleep through the night without gasping for air. Two years of state court cases didn't resolve the issue, so the Duffners and their attorney, Dave Rowland, filed a federal lawsuit this week. As we point out in our lawsuit, the Duffners are facing up to $180,000 in fines, up to 20 years in prison, um, simply because they've chosen to plant flowers instead of grass in their yard. Today, Wednesday, is the Duffners' 48th wedding anniversary. They didn't expect that anniversary to overlap with a federal lawsuit about how they manage their lawn. I'm willing to go all the way to the Supreme Court because I don't think anybody should be able to tell you what you can and cannot grow in your yard, especially if it's harmful to you. Why does the city feel the need to fight for years, racking up, no doubt, thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees that the taxpayers are having to pay just so that they can force citizens to plant a grass in their yard that makes them sick. We reached out to the city of St. Peter's and got a statement saying, in part, we received the notice of the lawsuit earlier today and will be working with legal counsel to review the issues and consider all of our options in this case. We'll let you know what happens. In the studio, Art Holiday, News Channel 5, on your side. Okay, I'm going to start out with something that I bet none of you expect. None of you expect. And give me a second after I say it before you think I've lost my mind or the government came and sucked my brain out and replaced me because it ain't what you're going to think it is, but it is what I'm saying it is. Does that make sense? Let's see if it does. I think this lady's full of shit about the the grass and allergy thing. I think it's irrelevant. Here we go. Now this is where you go, okay, he's not nuts. I think it's irrelevant to the, the argument in the case, but I think she's full of shit. I think she's trying to pile it on, and it may backfire. Um, here's why. She says in this thing, the postage stamp size piece of ground. This is a post, it's a very accurate statement. This is your, your typical postage stamp front yard and backyard. It's very, very tiny. And they show her sitting in her chair in her, I think it's a beautiful garden, uh, being allergy free from the evil grass, which is literally five feet away on one side from one neighbor's grass and maybe 15, 20 feet the other side of the other neighbor's grass. So she's surrounded by grass, but because she's not sitting directly in the middle of it, 
she's not got, I, I just think on that level, I think she's full of shit. I could be wrong, but I don't like to over-sensationalize that which does not need to be sensationalized. And here, here's what I'm talking about. You hear it all the time. City is sent to evict a war veteran over the fact that his house is off-grid. I don't care that he's a war veteran. I mean, on some level I do, but in, in this context, I don't care. He's being thrown out of his house because he's off-grid. This is bullshit, right? You know, uh, you know, a World War II veteran being forced to... I don't care. I don't care. Because what you're saying then is, well... If he wasn't a World War II veteran, it'd be okay. If, if she wasn't allergic to grass, it would be okay to tell her. She, you see what I'm saying? So I just kind of want to set the scene with that. Now, the, the most telling thing in all of these things is how city governments always reply. You see what the reply here was? It was, it was absolute. I mean, you, I could have written it myself. I can tell you how they're going to reply. The city of St. Peter's follows All of the zoning ordinance and apical laws and regulations in the state of Missouri. So I think I said it was Florida. I thought it was St. Peter's, Florida. So the state of Missouri pertaining to the cities of the fourth class. Okay. So in other words, we don't give a shit if the law or the ordinance makes sense. We just do it. We're only following orders and doing our job. We don't care about you people. We don't care that we're inconveniencing somebody. We don't care that we're stepping on somebody's rights. We don't give a flying shit what you want. We're in charge. Shut up and do what we say. That's what that means. Shut your mouth. Plant your grass. But don't you smoke grass in the state of Missouri or we'll put your ass in prison. And you want to tell me this is land of the free and home of the brave? Are you people that keep saying that? Are you effing out of your effing mind? Are you seriously mentally ill? Is there something wrong with you? Are you so dumbed down with fluoride, Prozac, and Adderall, and Zoloft, or whatever else they're shoving in your mouths today, Are you so dumbed down with the MSM that you don't even know what freedom is anymore, yet you could still say the word? Is that what it is? I think it is. And I know a lot of you are going, Jack, it's not me. I know it's not you. That's not the point. It's the, it's the nine out of ten morons you're surrounded by that go, USA, number one, USA. You're retarded. Somebody dropped you on your head when you were a child. We live in a place where a city government can threaten to put a, an elderly couple in jail and fine them over $100,000 because they won't plant Bermuda grass. And we're free? Any of you that think we're free, while well, this shit goes on to your fellow citizens, need to go join the Polar Bear Club. That's where they cut a hole in the ice on the Great Lakes and you jump in the cold water so you can wake the F up. And start telling your friends that, well, it's the freest country in the world. Well, what about this? Oh, well, that's there. So it doesn't matter because she's from Missouri. And I don't, again, I don't care. Well, she has allergies. I don't give a shit. I don't care if she doesn't like green and that's why she doesn't want to plant grass. It's her property. Now, if this was an HOA, I'd still be pissed, but I'd say, hey, you picked an HOA. This is a city government. This is direct force by the state, against the citizen, telling them that they, not even what they can't do, right? It's not like, well, you tried to put this and you're not allowed to. You must, at your own expense, 
plant and maintain a useless plant known as grass because we said so. And if you don't, if you don't, the way this is, this is this, because this is the threat, and it may end up this way. When we go through all of your bullshit inside our own core system that we know we're going to win because it's us, we will come to your house, we will have men with guns, we will take you by force, and we will lock you in a cage, And if you ever get out of that cage, we will garnish your social security for the rest of your life because you didn't plant grass when we told you to. If you think this nation is free while this kind of thing goes on in your nation, you are mentally freaking ill. You're mentally ill if you think there's freedom in this country. And this is one example. There are thousands and thousands of examples. And this is what... Most of the people in, I would call it the mainstream liberty movement, not the anarchists, not the true libertarians, but the, the USA number one, Donald Trump, yay, crowd doesn't get. The most grievous offenses by government in this country against individual rights are not by the federal government. They don't get a pass. They suck too. By the way, I can say Barack Obama is the worst president to serve during my lifetime And that doesn't make me pro-Donald Trump. Just for those of you on Facebook that don't get that. Just for those of you that don't understand that. Okay? Side note there. The federal government gets no pass. But the most intrusion on our lives is coming from the counties and the cities and the towns and the townships, etc. And the state. Lowercase s. States. Texas, Alabama, Arkansas, Missouri, Florida. You got it? But I, I, I'm sorry. If you think we're free... If you think this is freedom, you will plant grass or I will put your ass in prison for up to 20 years. Do you understand? These people probably don't get it. These people, the reason the extortion, the threats, the violence, and the coercion is not working on this elderly couple is they are blissfully ignorant of the consequences. What they're thinking is, They will never put us in jail over this. I'll take it all the way. She says, I'll take it to the Supreme Court. Well, first of all, you're not going to take it to the Supreme Court. You're going to get a lower federal court ruling. It's probably going to be against you. And at that point, if you don't comply, they probably will put you in jail. And these people are so flabbergasted by how ridiculous this is that they don't think it can happen. Just like the guy we wouldn't drain the pond in Montana that ended up in jail. And the other one in Oregon that ended up in jail. The reason they go that far and hold the line that far is it is it's so foreign to them that anybody actually would put them in prison or jail over something like this. But they will. They will and when they come and they grab an old lady and drag her out of her house, they'll chalk on resisting arrest to that charge. That's what they'll do. And they'll levy the fine of $120,000 or whatever it is. And they'll garnish their Social Security to make sure that they pay it. Or what they can of it. Land of the free. Home of the brave. If we were land of the free, this wouldn't happen. If we were home of the brave, there'd be a couple thousand men standing in front of this lady's property when they came to take her that said, we don't think we're going to let you do that today. If we were the people 
and the story that I read about from World War II that saved our Greece and took it in to support a war effort because men were over dying on our behalf. So we get a couple extra coupons so we could buy a little bit more butter and we were willing to do it. If we were those people, if we were that great generation we talk so much about and want to align ourselves with, this type of bullshit wouldn't be going on today. Don't tell me once again that we are the freest nation in the world. Don't insult my intelligence. Let's go on to something different before I blow a gasket. How about a way in which we can prevent this and begin to roll this back, a real way? Let me explain to you the real problem with everything I just told you. The majority of people in St. Peter's, Missouri, are okay with this. They're okay with it. They have been taught, they have been trained that what the government says you do. They've been taught obedience, they've been taught compliance, they've been taught that people that break the law are wrong. Regardless of what the law is, if you break the law, you're wrong. And that's because they grew up being taught that. What if we could teach our kids what liberty and freedom are? What if we taught a generation of kids what liberty and freedom are? So that maybe in future generations there would be a thousand men standing in front of that lady's house saying, I don't think you're going to do this today. Well, one way we might do that is reach our kids through stories and books. And I have an email here from Connor. Connor says, hey, Jack, just wanted to turn you on to these books I write that have been selling extremely well. Each one is based on a liberty classic like The Law by Batest, uh, Economics in One Lesson by Hazlitt, The Road to Serfdom by Hayek, etc. It's called Tuttle Twins at TuttleTwins.com. Nobody else is educating youngsters in this way about these important principles. I'd be happy to send you a complimentary set to set uh, check out. Let me know. Well, Connor, you can certainly do that. But what I thought I would do is uh, Connor has a nice little two-and-a-half-minute video explaining this himself on YouTube. I thought I'd play the audio for you and give Connor some exposure because I really like what he's doing because that's the kind of thing that actually can turn the tide. We have to have people that say to themselves, we're not going to let you do this. We're not going to let you do this. That when this happens, that, that there's, you know, the next day in a city with maybe a few thousand people, there's a few hundred phone calls to city councilmen going, what the hell are you doing? Do you all want to be fired? Because we can do that. We might not even wait, might, might even wait till the next election. We might start recalling your asses. And by the way, if you think you're going to do this to these people, we're not going to let you. Just so you know. This might actually get that to happen. So with that, here's Connor. Hey everybody, Connor Boyack here. I am the author of the Tuttle Twins books, and uh, I want to thank you for visiting the website and talk to you just very briefly about why I made these books and how they can benefit your family, as they've benefited mine. So I've got a couple little kids, and a few years ago I was looking on Amazon to try and see if there were any books that would teach my children the principles that I believe in. Uh, individual liberty, uh, free markets, private property, the things that have made America great. And I was disappointed and surprised. There was literally nothing. Uh, there was some for older kids. There was a little bit of uh, U.S. Constitution or American history. But there was really nothing that focused on the principles that underlie all of that. And I wanted for young minds, for simple minds, to be able to focus on the basics and build from there rather than starting at the Constitution or something like that. So together with Elijah, our amazing illustrator, we teamed up to start working on uh, the first book. And we were blown away by how successful it was. Uh, so many families, moms especially, have just been raving about the book. It's spread through mommy blogs and conventions and word of mouth really well. And so we decided to keep it going. And we'll probably do eight to ten uh, books in the series by the time we're done. 
and we're just excited to, to keep it going. My kids love it. They, they like uh, seeing the stories come alive as, as I work on them and as Elisha does them. Uh, but we love getting the feedback from our readers and seeing how families are having conversations that the parents never dreamed they'd be talking to their nine-year-old about. Um, the, the kids are understanding this so much better, in many cases better than their parents who have had to kind of struggle with what they learned in school and how that may not be the way the world actually works with some of this stuff. Uh, we are so excited to see how, how positive this is. Um, each book is just using a fun story to convey very sound and important principles. So it's disarming for the children. It's disarming for many adults, many parents who read these books as well, and are able to learn this just through a fun and engaging story. And, of course, the illustrations that really make the story come alive. Um, our target age range is about 5 to 10, uh, but we have many kids who are younger and many kids who are older who like the book. The younger kids like it because there's fun drawings, there's little Easter eggs and fun things to look for in the in the drawings, even if the concepts are a little bit over their head. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we have a lot of teenagers who enjoy the books that clearly are beneath them in age level, uh, typically, but they're being exposed to ideas and concepts that they haven't heard about in school or that their parents hadn't previously taught them about. And so our age range actually ends up being much broader, even though we're, we're targeting kind of the five uh, to 10 year old range. But we're going to keep the books going. They keep selling very well. We love seeing how families just get super excited about each book as it comes out and how they're able to have conversations and able to understand the world around them and, and uh, really have a, a better grasp on life and the way the world works and the importance of these principles, not only to apply them in their own lives, but uh, in the world around them as well. So thanks for watching. Hope you enjoy. Please take advantage of our special deals and buy a few books today uh, to have some great conversations in your own family and help provide your child with a foundation of freedom. Thanks. So I think that's great, and I will definitely uh, be taking Connor up in his offer to uh, send me a set of books, and I will definitely make sure uh, that we are reading them to our grandson. And as she gets older, our granddaughter as well. We'll have at least uh, two Americans that understand what freedom and liberty and property are. I mean, it's very important that we it, it respect the right of property. That's exactly why uh, the previous segment is happening, because the right of property is not respected. The person buys the property. They own the property. The government create, uh, uses the egregious action of taxing them for owning their own property, charging them money for the privilege of holding their own property that they paid for. And everybody's okay with this. And then turns around and says, and this is what you'll do with it. If we respected property, none of those things would happen. It's a world that we don't live in, but we could, and we might again someday. Anyway, Connor, I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's very important that we start educating our children I recommend everybody get over to his website. Again, that is called Tuttle Twins, T-U-T-T-L-E, twins.com. And there is a link in today's show notes for it as well. Next up, I really do need to get my blood pressure down after that. Ah, this kind of crap. I, I am so sick of this. It, you know, I, I'm telling you, this is the kind of shit. If, if, if George Washington was around today, stuff like this would have him picking up an AK-47. I'm sorry. It, it would. Uh, this country's become so soft, so weak, so pussified, 
that it's unbelievable. So let's talk about something else. People we can do on our homesteads that live happy, better lives or something like that. How about this question from Tim? Tim says, Hi, Jack. I was wondering what your favorite breed of duck for farming is. In the Duck Chronicles, it looks like you favored the Golden 300s, but I can't remember correctly. A few weeks ago, you mentioned getting a different breed. I'm hoping to start a flock of 20 or 30 ducks this spring in Fallon, Nevada, where the temperature range can be from negative 10 to 115 degrees. Your thought would be very appreciated. Uh, thank you, Tim. There are two different questions there. Basically, I want to start some ducks in a place where it gets 115 degrees. The negative 10, I don't give a shit about. I'm telling you, they don't care because you're not going to have negative 10 for very long. And as long as you have some place to get out of the wind uh, and, and what have you, cold is not a problem for ducks. It, it really isn't. I, I, earlier this week before it warmed up again, it was uh, like 30 degrees out. And the sun was shining, though. And all my ducks, all the breeds, every single one of them, We're sitting, and you guessed it, the shade, to get out of the sun, to take a break from the sun, and it's about 30 degrees out. So cold in ducks is okay. Ducks are, are cold-weather animals, as long as, other than muscovies, and they still are remarkably cold-tolerant. So it's all right, but you need to make sure that they have water and they have shade, especially in that heat that you're going to deal with. If you do that, you can manage. And, and talk to some people maybe around you and what they're set up like for ducks for your area. So let me go back to your your you know, question it seems like you're asking, which is, what's my favorite breed? My, my answer is, don't really care. They're all good, okay? I, I'll give you some things to think about with it, though, but it, it doesn't, I, it's not like, oh, gee, I, I, I love this breed more than that breed or whatever. Uh, keep in mind, as a duck farmer, my main product is not a duck to eat. If it was, then it would be jumbo pecking. And I would have a flat out, if you're not doing this, you're dumb, Okay, because economically you're not going to be able to make a viable meat product with anything else unless it's doing other things and it's a, a final destination for it. So, for in, in, in instance, there's a thing called the slow arc of taste, which is a big foodie thing. And one of the items on that list of, of foods you're supposed to, as you complete this, this like tour of taste, is Cayuga duck. So if you were doing Cayuga ducks and you had them as a laying operation or doing something else with them and then you produced a certain number of them sold them as a very boutique product at the end to some place where people have more money than brains that buy food, then maybe you could make some money with them. But when it comes to a meat duck, jumbo, pecking, period. It is the Cornish cross of ducks. Assuming you want to do eggs like me, the best bang for your buck on production is the Metzer layer 300s. Whether they're golden or white doesn't even matter. They're the same bird. They have the same characteristics. One's just white and one's just kind of tannish whatever. I have both whites and browns and the reason I have whites and browns is because one time I needed some and they didn't have any browns and they were able to ship me whites. And I said, okay, send me whites. That's it. And these are available from Metzer Farms. M-E-T-Z-E-R. Metzer Farms is where you can get the Metzer 300s. And it's the only place you can get the Metzer 300s. There's one other website out there selling them But they're still coming from Metzer Farms. Okay, so for right now, there's one, one supplier, and I say go directly to the source. Don't put a middleman in the way. There's no reason to do that. There's a lot of other breeds, though, that are fantastic ducks. Khaki Campbells are a fantastic duck. They really are a fantastic animal. They um, are, are, are just a great layer. They almost lay as well as the Metzer 300s. They're 
uh, a little bit better on feed utilization, a little bit smaller body, though the, the 300s are very small birds as well. They look big until you pick one up. You're like, man, there's hardly even a bird there. You wonder how they are able to do what they do with as little as they have. Um, neither one makes a good meat bird. Neither one makes a good dual-purpose bird. Probably your best dual-purpose birds are rowans, uh, maybe cayugas. They're still pretty small, honestly, compared to the peckins. Uh, peckins are okay for a homestead dual-purpose bird because they will get big enough to eat. They do lay eggs, but they don't lay enough eggs to make them viable in an egg-laying operation where you're doing it for profit. Um, the um, um, I'm sorry. Welsh Harlequin is a, just a beautiful duck, great personality, high laying rate, though not as high as the 300s. What you may have heard me say is we're thinking about bringing a bunch of Welsh Harlequins in because they lay sufficiently. What we might do this year is we might go on a major growth this year on the flock. We might do like 50 Welsh Harlequins and 50 layers um, to supplement and just have some diversity. And we like the birds. Now, when you're talking about 20 to 30 ducks, let me tell you what you're not going to do. You're not going to make any money. You're not going to make any money with 20 to 30 ducks. At your, if they're all ducks and there's no drakes and you have 30, at the peak of laying, you're going to get maybe 26 eggs a day. At the, the, the lowest time of year, you, you might get six or four or two. During the molt, you might get one a day here and there. You might go some days with none. Okay, And the reason I say you're not going to make any money is you can't build a customer base with that low of an egg count. Let's say you got two dozen a day every day throughout the year. Not going to happen with 30 ducks, but let's just say that you did. That's 14 dozen a week. You can't build a reliable, large customer base where you can constantly move your, your eggs with that. You can build a few customers, you can make some money, and maybe you can pay for their feed. Now, so th here's the good part of that. Buy what you like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You could go down to Tractor Supply and buy 36 ducks and hopefully get 20 to 24 females out of that. Cull off most of your drakes, keep a couple around if you want to reproduce, and you'll produce, with that number of ducks, plenty of eggs for your own use. You could get a certain duck because you like the way it looks. You get silver apple yards because they're uh, you know, kind of an endangered uh, breed, a heritage endangered breed. A beautiful duck, beautiful like the, the Welsh Harlequins. Uh, you could get runner ducks because you think they're funny. It doesn't matter. You can get rowans because you like the males look like mal you know, big pretty Drake Mallards. You, you can have anything you want, and it won't matter. It's okay. Get some Cayugas. Honestly, if I was going to have a small flock like that, and it was just mostly for personal use and sell a little bit of surplus to pay for feed, I'd get a bunch of different stuff, just because it's fun. Get some Fawn Runners and some Chocolate Runners and some uh, Rowans and some, you know, I'd, I'd mix it up a little bit. Four of this and four of that and four of the other, and just, just have some fun with it. If you're eventually going to build the flock up, there's where it's a little different. This is where it's different. If you're eventually going to build the flock up and your plan is to be like me and say, I'm not going through brooding and all this crap with, with you know eggs that are from my farm, and I, I just want to know if I want to add 50 females to my flock this month, then when I buy them, that's what I'm going to get and I want to know what breed they are, then it doesn't matter. You still just have fun with them. You just learn if you want to. Because that's what a lot of people are doing now. They want to, they want to scale up to the level like we're doing with you know 100-plus ducks. Um, and they say, well, I don't want to just do that out of the gate. Very smart. Take a season and learn your trade. A couple dozen, 
get a few small customers, and then scale up from there. Just understand, you got a six-month lag. You bring those baby ducklings, and you got six months until they start laying. You really got six and a half months until they start really kind of popping them out. And it's seven until they're at full production. So just understand that lag. But if you're going to do that, and you're going to do it by, we're going to do this, we're going to get them going, we're going to see how it goes, and if we like it, then we'll go buy 50 or 100 or whatever it is. Then just do the same thing. Have your mongrel flock. Don't worry about it. Enjoy them. See which ones you like best. If your plan is, well, what I want to do is I want to get these birds, and I want to bring them in, and then I want to grow my flock from my flock and resupply from my flock, then you really should settle on a breed. You really should. And the breed I would probably settle on would either be Khaki Campbell or Welsh Harlequin. And I'll, I'll give you the, the strengths of both. If you brought in, let's say, 24, uh, I would even go say 26 female um, Khaki Campbells and four Drakes, you'd probably end up with a really good mix. You'd get enough breeding going on to incubate eggs, or maybe you get a broody girl out of there or two, or bring in two or three female Muscovies and no male Muscovies and let them be your brooders. You could grow that flock as big as you wanted. And you know you're getting khaki camels because that's what you got. All right? And they have a, a higher egg production uh, number than the, the Welsh Harlequin. Not a lot because the Welsh Harlequin comes right out of the khaki camel line. But that's you'd have khaki camel ducks. And everybody likes them. But Alex Shrug talked about it in history. I mean, everybody, you know, so-and-so and her, her 18 khaki camel ducks, right? So you can sell them. You can sell the birds. You can sell your surplus birds. However, if you go with the Welsh Harlequins, your, your laying rate might be a little bit less, but they're such a pretty duck, and they're hard to find. And you would probably find that when you have a bunch born, and you say, well, I want to sell some of them off to people that want ducks of their own, you would have a much better market, and you get a much better premium on them. And this is one of the ways that you can really get mileage with that. You say, well, Jack, I just had you know 30 females born. And that's why I did it, so I would have them for my farm. I don't really want to sell them, so sell the older birds. Band your babies, and when your new babies come, band them different colors so you have them different years. And that way you could sell two-and-a-half-year-old uh, birds that still have laying life left in them, but they're not at peak production anymore, three-and-a-half-year-old birds. Because a lot of people that want a couple dozen to run around their yard, they don't care that they're a few years old, especially if they know they got laying left in them and they're going to be able to have babies and make more. So I think your, 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 your Welsh Harlequins would command a higher price if you're going to sell live bird surplus. But your Khaki Campbells would outlay them. Why not Messer 300s? They'll breed true for, I think, one generation, and then they begin to lose that high productivity. But you could do it. You, you could do that, too. The problem with them is you're not going to have a, an easy time selling the drakes because the drakes just look like a Swedish male. That's, that's what, that's, it's weird. The white ones, they're both white. They're hard to tell apart. But the... The uh, the goldens look like a pretty brown duck, almost like a uh, what do they call them? Uh, a buff Orpington. There's a buff Orpington chicken. I know there's also a buff Orpington duck. The the golds kind of look like a darker buff Orpington or buff duck, or American buff even. But the males look like a Swedish. They're almost hard hard to tell apart. They're black with a white chest and all, and, and they're just not going to sell well. But the male Welsh Harlequins are so pretty, 
They're likely to sell. Another bird you could do, though I just don't think they have the egg rate, would be rowans if you did an all-rowan flock because the males look like big, beautiful mallards, which is what they basically are. So you have to think about what you want to get out of this and what you want to grow. But let's say all you want is a little homestead flock. Get a mongrel flock. You'll have a lot more fun with them that way. And get some runners because they're just fun. We have some runners. I have no interest in breeding them or anything like that. Their egg-laying rate's okay. But just watching those things run around is freaking hysterical. And you know what? It worked. I feel better now. And now I want to read something to you that really makes me feel good. This is from Ian McCollum of Forgotten Weapons. Uh, for those of you that don't know who Ian is, he, he's been on the show again. He has a YouTube channel called Forgotten Weapons, and he chronicles uh, all of these old ancient guns, not even really ancient, 100 years old, 50 years old, some a couple hundred years old, some you know, fairly recent. But they're all ones that just kind of, they didn't make it, so they just kind of faded away. And he's been doing this for quite a few years now. Again, he has been on the show before. And uh, they, they've, he's built a really successful YouTube channel. Uh, with that as his core. And he does other things with guns on the channel as well. Here's what he has to say. Hi, Jack. I just wanted to drop you a quick note. The year is basically over. And I have, for the first time, blown past 100000 in gross income from Forgotten Weapons. It was back in late 2011. You did a 5 Minutes with Jack podcast using my site as an example, which prompted me to seriously look at making it my full-time occupation. I quit my real job in mid-2012, and now in 2016 I've hit that 100K benchmark. Thanks for the inspiration, Ian McCollum, Forgotten Weapons. No, dude, thank you for the inspiration. Because you're proof of what I've said. What I've said over and over and over and over and over again, flying in the face of all of these rich guys that want to tell other rich pe kids pe people how to get rich. All this bullshit from Mark, you know, what's his name? Uh, Mark Cuban, right? Don't follow your passion. Don't follow your passion. Find a need in the market, whatever. You know what? Ian's passion is, is guns. And if he can make a hundred grand a year following his passions, why should he do something he doesn't want to do? You know? If you really love what you do, and you really put everything into it, and you really think about how to make it work, you can make a living today in just about any niche there is. If you're good, and if you, you, you commit yourself to being better all the time. So here's my call out to this audience. Especially some of you that are on your way already. You know, you're making some money. You're just not where you can walk away from the job yet. Or you walked away from the job yet. Boy, you get nervous by the end of the month. And then you get it to, to get into this. When you're making, the reason I put out is 100K, right? 100,000 a year is, first of all, self-employed income is different than employer-paid income. You have to pay matching Social Security on it. You're in it all by yourself. And it's wonderful, but it takes more. And then once you get to a certain point, it basically is the same. But but when you get to about a hundred thousand a year in self-employed income, it's sustainable. You can live a good life, right? You're not living the Mac Daddy life or whatever. You're not riding around in, in, in Mercedes and Ferraris and shit like that and, and and making it rain in a club like an idiot. You're not doing that. Um, but you can live just about anywhere in the country other than a few parts of the country that are ridiculously stupid that you wouldn't really want to live to anyway if you didn't have to, um, and live a good life. You can take vacations. You can eat what you want to eat. You can eat healthy. You can afford health insurance, even though it's stupidly expensive now. You can live okay. 
And you'll be able to live okay or better from that point forward. That's why I put that number out. It's also a number that sticks in people's heads. You tell somebody, well, you can make $50,000 a year on your own. They're like, ah, oh, I believe that. You tell them $100,000, it's, it's, like, it's like the $999 thing. Once you go over from that, that you know, to that six-figure. And there's a lot of people out there slaving away in jobs. And they, if you say to them, well, one day you'll be making $100,000 a year at their job, they say, no, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. This job, it might, through inflation, someday pay that much. But in my lifetime, I got 20 years left. This job is never going to be a $100,000 a year job. Never. And they just resign themselves. They couldn't have this. It's a ceiling. It's a bullshit ceiling. If that's what you want, you can have it. And here's the funny thing. You teach a person to go out and create an opportunity for themselves that builds up to $100,000 in income. You know what they say to themselves? I could do that again. And that person gets to a point where they can make a couple hundred thousand a year or more. And then you really live life on your own terms. You know, life might be in some ways a shit sandwich, but the more bread you have, the less shit you have to eat. That's truth. And all of a sudden, even the things that really bother you, you start to realize, well, I can't fix that, but there's all these things that I can do with the, with the accumulated wealth and social capital things that I have right here. So I'm going to focus on my own little world and my own little thing and the things that I can do. I'm going to do that. So you do it. Or will you do it? That's my call out. Is there anybody in this audience with the guts to say, I'm going to come today, first show of the year, I'm going to post in the comments what I'm doing, and I will hit this goal. I'll get there. And you don't have to say you're going to do it in 2017. If you think you're going to, lay it out. I believe Ian probably could have looked at it at the beginning of 2016 and said, yeah, I can do it this year. But say within 24 months, within 36 months. It took Ian from 2011 to 2016 to do it. Five years. Five years. But was it worth it? I bet you if you ask him, the answer is yes. It, 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 it is an amazing thing. Well, the first time you actually build real sustainable income for yourself, the, the entire apparatus of society that's been used to lie to you, to deny you, to tell you that it's not possible or it's hard, only special people can do it, it just falls away like the facade that it is. And you realize it was always a lie. You always could have. It was just a matter of asking yourself the right questions to lead yourself down the right path. So will you? How many of you will say, I'm going to start my walk on the road to 100K this year, and I'm going to give myself a timeline, I'm going to hold myself accountable, and I'm going to make it. I hope it's a lot of you. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you, if you like this show and the work that we do, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you join the MSB, you'll get benefits that are available only to members. And I mean, what I'd like you to do today, if you've, if you've not ever joined the MSB before, if you've thought about it and thought, Jack doesn't really need me, first of all, let me tell you something, I, I need you. I need 
people to be members of this show for this show to be successful. That's my primary revenue model. Um, but I also want you to realize it's not like a charity thing or something. I want you to go to the survivalpodcast.com today or tspc.co is a short link that'll take you there on your phone where you don't have to type much shit in tspc.co.co. And then you'll see across the top, you see all these tabs and one says members. Click that link and don't read the sales copy. Just, just scroll down to where you see the list of vendors and just look how long the list of companies I've negotiated discounts for you is. Start checking some of them out and give them some, some, uh, some exp you know, exposure for, for stepping up and supporting the show and the work that I do. Taking a look at them and thinking, like, could I use a couple things from four or five of those companies every year? If the answer is yes, then join the MSB because you'll put the money plus what you spend back in your pocket and discounts. That's the way I designed it. So consider joining today. Maybe make it a New Year's resolution. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders, like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all, again, all active duty and prior service, you can join and, and get a discount. Before you join, email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'd like to say something here today, too. I come down on cops all the time when cops are assholes. But I don't come down on cops as just a group. I, I, if you're going to bash cops, don't do it on my Facebook page. And I mean my personal one. That's where it seems to happen more. If you want to put shit up that says all cops are bad people, if you want to be like the retard on, on my page today that, that, that somebody said, well, what if you live next to a cop? And he said, move. You, you, just don't bother me. Don't bother me in any way, shape, or form. Because cops are just people like us. And there's some damn good ones out there. So those of you that go, how are you an anarchist and give a cop a discount? I'm not giving a cop a discount. I'm giving a man that provides a service to his fellow man a discount. Because if he's listening to this show and he's not turning it off, I know he's on the good guy's side or he wouldn't be able to listen. That's how. Next up, the other way that you can support this show, and it's a really simple way, is just do your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z. stands for TSP Amazon. T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there. And uh, there's a link you can click. You go over to Amazon, do your shopping. You buy whatever you were going to buy anyway, and you support our show. I mean, that, that's as simple as it gets. It doesn't cost you anything. doesn't really even take you any more time. Or you can click through, and you can see the item of the day. Today's item of the day is Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber. Now, this is following through on a promise I made last year. I put up a, a box that I use for keeping all my gun cleaning and maintenance stuff. My, not everything I own, not all of it will fit, but my basics go-to stuff. This little chest, and it can hold a gun, and it's pretty cool. And I said that I would maybe once or twice a week for the first few months in 2017 give an item that I use for maintaining my guns. And that way, those of you that don't really have your stuff together with gun maintenance could get it together a little bit at a time. And I thought that would be cool. So I decided the first one we would do this year is Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber. And this is the, the version that is what's called Synthetic Safe. Now, what is Birchwood Casey? Birchwood Casey's like magic. It really is. You know those infomercials? It slices, it dices, you won't be. And wait, there's more. This is a product that, like, without being all sensational like that, it's that good. And it really is. This stuff is for stripping grime, grease, you know, shot residue, powder residue, whatever it is. If you want it off metal and it's anything other than parkerizing or bluing or something like that, it will come off. And it comes off instantly. You spray it, and it, it just drains off. Gunk and gook come off it, and it's clean, and it's instantly dry. It also gets ice cold. 
And this stuff, it's like magic. It's the best thing for cleaning guns when you want to clean them all the way down to like new and then re-oil them and all. This is it. Now, I don't use it every time I clean my guns. I don't clean my guns like back when I was in the Army anymore. I clean my guns to be serviceable, useful, and functional, right, and to be maintained well. But when I want to, you know, when it's been used a few times and I want to open the action up and get it all cleaned out, I go to Birchwood Casey every time. Now, speaking of the military, let me tell you about this synthetic safe thing and why this is important. So I was a kid. I was probably 10, 11 years old. And my uncle used to let me, yeah, I mean, it, let me clean his guns. Like they'd come home from hunting and go, you want to clean the gun? Oh, yeah, I get to clean the gun. I mean, I was that kind of kid. I, any excuse to be part of that. You know, maybe that's why, you know, granddaddy's gun's kind of important to me. Granddaddy'sgun.com, guys. Go join today. Anyway, so he, he cleaned the gun. And for that was usually maybe run a patch or a brush through it and a little oil patch back through to keep the, the bore lubed up and clean out the action with a rag. And, and then we had a rag. This is a good tip for wiping down your guns. Just get a ball jar and, 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 you know, a, a nice lint free rag and impregnate it with some gun oil and keep it in that jar. And I'd take the jar out, and I kept that in the gun cabinet because we should just have a gun cabinet right there in the front of the house. I mean, this was a long time ago. And you took the jar out, and you opened it up, and took that rag out, and you wiped that gun down so it wouldn't get any rust on it. Make sure all the metal was coated with a little thin layer of oil. Only touch the wood, set it back in the gun cabinet. So proud of myself. But every once in a while, it would be time to really clean a gun. And I remember the first time he showed me, he took his 1100 Remington shotgun apart, took everything out of it, and got that Birchwood Casey and showed me all that stuff and said, try to get that off of there. And I was trying to get it off there. He goes, watch this. Boom. It was clean. Like, holy crap. And it was like ice cold. For, you know, for a 10, 11-year-old kid, that's, that is like magic. How did it get so cold? And he's trying to explain. And I'm just, wow, this stuff's great. So flash forward about eight years later, I'm in the Army. I'm going through basic training. I know how to clean a gun, man. I clean the shit out of my gun, and Sergeant Major comes out for a big inspection, sticks that long, weird... Every Sergeant Major seems... I think they have surgery on their freaking little fingers so they can stick it up in there and he'd find... I mean, I'd stuck my finger in there a hundred times and couldn't find any dirt. Pulls it out, and there's dirt on it. Failure inspection, right? This sucks, you know? So I was thinking, man, I wish I could get some Birchwood Casey. So basic training ends. You got no freedom in basic training. At least back then, you had no freedom in basic training. And uh, we get to AIT, or advanced training. Same stuff, you know, people yelling at you, clean your boots, clean your gun, inspections, PT, classes, you know, uh, all that stuff. Except you get more freedom. Like, at the end of the day, like, you, when I was in, you couldn't leave post during the week, but you could go places on post during the week. So we go to PX, you could go to a little store, you go to a little arcade, you go to the movies, yeah, stuff like that. So I think, man... We got inspection for our guns next week. I know it's a rifle. Shut up. I'm not a soldier anymore. Call it whatever I want. I'm like, we have inspection our guns next week. If I could get some Birchwood Casey, man. So I go down the PX, and I go back in the sporting goods section. I'm thinking, come on, please. And I'm, I'm just thinking, there's no way it's here. And I look, and back in the sporting goods section of the PX, at Fort Jack, South Carolina, they had it right there on the Birchwood Casey gun scrubber. I bought four cans. I go back to my squad mate. I tell everybody about it and how we used to use it and say, we're going to clean our guns with this, right? And so we had eight guys, and we're going to rock our next inspection. So we you know, we draw our weapons from the arms room. We're getting ready for it. We've got all our TA-50 gear laid out and all that stuff. We're cleaning our guns. And uh, it's, people are like, oh, my God, look at it. Just absolutely pristine, clean, everything pristine. And then we start noticing, 
And these are like 1970 model M16A1s with like old crappy, I mean like the forearms that you see in movies about Vietnam on them. That's how old these guns were. But there, there's any place that got on the, the stock or the forearm, it's like, especially the stock more than the forearm, bleached out white, like a whitish gray. Oh, shit. Well, we had a squad leader named Rutledge. Rutledge was a prior service Marine, couldn't find a job, joined the Army after a few years of freedom because he needed a job and didn't want to go back in the Corps. He's like, oh, I've seen this happen before from some other reason. It was a solvent or something. So black shoe polish, a little bit of gun oil, CLP for you military types, rubbed on the stock and rubbed down real good, and they looked just like the crappy the guns that they were again. So that solved that problem. So... Years ago now, probably about 2012, I guess, I was in the store picking some gun supplies up, and I found a can that said Synthetic Safe. So I guess somebody addressed that. I don't know if originally it was soldiers or nothing. And I know people are like, well, why wouldn't you know that, Jack? Well, you know, in 1988, there were very few people that were, you know, sportsmen, that were hunters and things like that, that had a shotgun or a rifle or anything with a synthetic stock. Everything was wood. Now, there were some synthetic stocks, but it wasn't very common. It wasn't like it is today where probably more guns today are sold with synthetic stocks, not just the tactical stuff, even the, the sporting stuff, the hunting stuff, than are with wooden stocks. And you always see the old farts and older like me walking around. We like that wooden furniture. But, you know, your ARs and stuff doesn't come with that. So if you're going to use this stuff, use synthetic, synthetic safe. Um, it is awesome. I'm sorry to make that a long story, but I thought maybe you'd get a kick out of it. And there's a write-up on it and links in the uh, T-SPAS write-up today. Last but not least, our song of the day. I was trying to think of something kind of rocking or something to send you in 2017 with. I just couldn't come up with anything. And I thought about, you know, this piece about the lawn, and I knew I was going to snap my gasket when I read that. I didn't know I was going to snap it as bad as I did, uh, but I knew that I would be upset about it. And it got me thinking, you know, the way to prevent this is to create more libertarians, more real libertarians. Now, I say real, real libertarian, I don't mean people just call themselves libertarians. I mean libertarians that will probably eventually turn into anarchists, uh, even if they don't think that we're going to have an anarchist society. They'll be an anarchist in heart and a libertarian in practice. So we create more libertarians and enough of them, and you're just not going to have things like throwing people in jail because they, they refuse to grow grass in their front yard. And I was like, is there a song that's like a hidden libertarian song? Like, it, it could be a libertarian anthem, but nobody realizes it. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times in your life, and you, you don't realize what the words actually say. And I thought of Caddyshack. Remember the movie Caddyshack from the 80s? Yes, I'm an 80s child. And uh, Bill Murray and the gopher. Uh, you know, he's going to kill the gopher. And I remembered the gopher dancing. Don't ask me why, but I just thought of this. And he's dancing to this song, and it's called I'm All Right by Kenny Loggins. I'm all right, nobody worry about me. Now, now I know if you're, if you're 40 or older, you've heard this song because you've seen that movie. If you're 40 or younger, you probably still heard it. I'm not sure, but you probably have. If you're one of my 20-year-old listeners, you may not have. Go watch the movie, what movies were like when movies were real. Uh, and, and fun, and, and entertaining. I think that movie came out like 82 or 84 or something like that. Um, and you need to just have a laugh and not be so serious about yourself. But uh, you, you, you probably remember that, right? I'm all right, nobody worry about me. But do you know what the next two lines of that song are? 
Why you got to give me a fight? Can't you just let me be? Think about that. And then it kind of repeats itself. And then it says, do what you like. Do it naturally. But if it's too easy, they're going to disagree. Think about that. Do what you like. Do it naturally. But if it's too easy for you, then there, the, 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 the masses will disagree. Because you're not bothering anybody, but your life's too easy, or it just works out well for you, they're going to disagree. It's your life, and it isn't a mystery. If it's nobody's business, it's everybody's game. I'm telling you, this, this could be, I'm going to skip ahead of the song, this could be a national, a libertarian anthem. What, what do you want? Who do you want to be today? And who is it really making up your mind? You want to listen to the man, pay attention to the magistrate, and while I got you in the mood, listen to your own heart beaten, own heart beaten, own heart beaten, own heart beaten. Don't it get, don't it get you moving? Man, it makes me feel good. This song's about freedom. If you've seen the movie, you know that there's a, a kid in there that that's all he really wants. It's a different type of freedom than we're talking about today. But this song's about freedom. And in the end, the gopher survives despite high explosives. And the good guys win. That's an 80s movie. It's an 80s song. But it is a libertarian anthem. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed my first show back. I hope you kick ass in 2017. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm all right. about me. Why you got to give me a fight? Can't you just let it be?
Tchau, 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 tchau.